we're in the middle of the little mini-series, the Rebirth series, and uh, the Rebirth was designed to take us into the Easter moment, it is also built around a man who we're introduced to in the third chapter of John. Some of us may recall that last week, last weekend, we started this discussion of a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man who was much older than Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was also, from what we can see, a member of what had been the most powerful governing board of that day in Israel, uh, predominantly made up of those from Judea, the region where Jerusalem was in the south, a very intellectual uh, group of people who were highly religiously trained and knew the law, knew the scriptures intimately. Nicodemus was one of them. He was one of an elite group of men who formed essentially the highest council of the country. Uh, only Rome retained a certain level of jurisdiction as their overseers slash oppressors, depending on one's perspective. And uh, clearly, uh, some of even Jesus' disciples resented Rome. But Jesus didn't get drawn into those battles. One of the things that we know is that the Sanhedrin, or this group of men that Nicodemus was a part of, this religious party, this group that had so much power, that they really uh, did not care for what Jesus was doing. And we saw how last week Nicodemus had to come to Jesus in the night under the cloak of darkness stealthily because he didn't want his peers to know that he was meeting with the Lord. He and a small group of others actually had felt that Jesus was saying something that they needed to hear. And some of them were actually considering the possibility, much to what would have been the shock of their peers, that Jesus was and could have been the Messiah, the promised one of God. They believed that he was sent from God but they didn't know to what extent. And Nicodemus wanted to know more. He had a sincere yearning to have a conversation with Jesus and to ask him certain questions about who are you? Why have you come? Are you from God? If so, what is it that God's trying to say? In the course of that conversation, Jesus has this interesting exchange, right? He, that's where the, the phrase, you must be born again, occurs. Jesus says, you must have something of a renewal in your life, a transformation at a spiritual level. That's what I'm talking about, like a new birth. And then as that conversation went on and, and Nicodemus was intrigued, he was puzzled. Here he was so learned, and yet he couldn't grasp what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus ended up saying, well, you know that question you basically asked me at the beginning? Who am I? Why have I come? Well, let me give you the answer to that more explicitly. And what he said was what we've come to know as John 3.16, probably the most famous verse ever quoted, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. That's me. That whoever would believe on him would not perish. That death would not be the final word, but life, the undying life of God now and forever would reign over your life because of what I am doing. If you will make room for me, if you will receive me, that was the conversation. It was intense. We often forget that's where John 3.16 comes from, out of a conversation that he has with a man who was secretly but sincerely seeking to consider who Jesus was. Now, we don't exactly know how that conversation ended. What we do know is something in Nicodemus was definitely inflamed. There was a spark that got even more, I would say, you know, it grew. It grew into something. It was, something was going on in his heart. You know what that's like. Some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like something starts to happen, and we can't even explain it to people sometimes, but our heart and our love for God starts to grow. Our sense of who Jesus is begins to expand it almost becomes like it's, it's, it's something that we can't let go of. It's almost apprehended us. And, and that's, I think, what happened to Nicodemus. And, and yet, at the same token, we know that something else occurs. About four chapters later, 
Although we don't know what happened on that night, what we do know is something else occurs that involves Nicodemus. It comes on the heels of one of the most remarkable uh, exchanges or declarations that Jesus makes in his entire ministry. An incident so controversial that people immediately at that moment were divided up into groups of thought. Something Jesus said, something he did that was so incredible for his day that it demanded someone to have an opinion of him. Now we're going to look at that. It's found in John 7. And I want us to turn there if you can. You can either follow along in your Bible, you've got a Bible app, or you can follow with the scriptures that we have put in the handout. But in John 7, this is what the scripture says. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival. Oh, I need to say this about that. The festival that we're talking about. In other words, what, the, what it's saying is on the great day, the final day, the high point of the festival, that was the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the great feasts of Israel. It was celebrated for an entire week. One of the things that we know at the time also was that Jesus had already on this day gone to the temple to teach. So he had gone up to the temple. Now, a lot of times we'll read about the temple in the scriptures and we go, what is that talking about? It was a temple that was built by Herod the Great. It was a magnificent edifice. It doesn't exist today in terms of what we can see visibly except for one piece of it still is with us. At least it's been uncovered. It's the part that we, we know, some of you know that have heard of the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. You still can see this today. Now, the Western Wall, a lot of times people don't realize, is only the a part, it's a retaining wall for what used to be the temple. You see where the mosque is and the Dome of the Rock? That's built on what is known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that is where the original temple was. In AD 70, as Jesus said to those who, the Pharisees he had talked, he says, this temple, with its awe and impressiveness, he says, it is go this will pass away but my words will not pass away. And he started talking about how that temple was going to also ultimately come apart and be destroyed. He talked about himself, how it would not be, he would not be destroyed. And, he, and, and they said, who are you to say that this temple will be destroyed? Well, we know that 40 years later, Rome, in a rage, uh, tore that temple apart. And the only piece that we can see right now is this western wall. This, that's a part of a retaining wall. And there's so much, that other piece up there, is there's so much controversy in that area right now? Because that was the place where the temple had been. That was the city of David. That was Zion, the Most High. That's where people came to worship God. And they would sing their songs, and they would cry out on the Lord, and they would make their way to the Lord's house. And we know that Jesus was in that temple that day, teaching on this, the highest day, of the, one of the most highest feasts, feasts that they had. So it was the seventh day. You know what they would do? A lot of the things that happened on the Feast of Tabernacles, which was designed to celebrate God's provision in the wilderness after they had left Egypt and were wandering, one of the things they did was they had this extravagant, extensive water ceremony. And again, it's hard for us to appreciate it, but the cool thing is because we can still walk there and actually see, you can see the, the limestone, the, with its golden hue and the yellow and the whites, this, it creates a, it's, a, it's still pretty impressive for just a retaining wall. And you can walk the place. It's one of the, I've been, been here a few times. It's one of the most amazing things to, to walk the ground that we know Jesus walked when he was making his way up. That, that, that is essentially the same place. And in fact, what would happen is when they would have this, in, imagine that there's this massive temple, right? Jesus is in the temple, he's been teaching. But it's the seventh day. It's the great day. It's the final day of the great feast. 
And each of those first seven days, the first six days, there was a modest water ceremony that was designed to celebrate the provision of the Lord when, when, rock, when water came out of the rock when they were in the, during that time when the, they were in the wilderness and God provided and saved his people. So they would do this ceremony. The, the priests would, leave, would come down from the temple and they would walk down, and you can still see these places today. It would go to either the, the, the brook of Kidron or the pool of Siloam. And they would gather water and they would carry the water back up. And in a ceremony, they would walk around the altar of God and they would pour out the water and the water would flow down the steps. Now on the seventh day, and again, the Brook of Kidron, if you come down there, before it goes up to the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, right up there, you can oversee the city of Jerusalem. You understand what he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because he could see it and he knew what was coming, right? But, you, but here's the thing. They would get the water and they would go back up and all the people would be singing, they'd be singing together. It was a celebration, but nothing like the celebration on the seventh day, the great day, the climax day. On that day, they would take huge vats of water. They would carry them. They would make their way up. And then they would not just pour out one time the water uh, on the altar. They would, walk, they would walk around seven. They would do it seven times. And they would just keep pouring the water, keep pouring the water. And the water just started flowing. It would flow down the steps of the temple. Everybody, everybody's singing. Everybody's praising God, quoting and singing from the Psalms, singing from Isaiah about the well of salvation. They, started, they would cry out, Hosanna, right? Which, which was a version of meaning, God save us. It was part of the tradition. Hosanna. Rabbah, it was part of the way in which they said and marked that moment, the God who saves, God our salvation, save us. It was also known to be messianic. And so when they would pour that out, the water would flow and they were all just pouring. It was a mask. Imagine in our mind from an altar place, a massive amount of water, just these giant vats being poured out by these priests and the water just flowing down the stairwell. It would flow down into the courts, court of the women, and then it would flow down into the court of the Gentiles, and it would fill. Everybody could see the water on that day. And we're told that in the middle of that amazing moment that spoke of God's provision and of his promise to save, in the middle of that, Jesus did something that was so polarizing, so, so unexpected. I don't even think his disciples anticipated what he was going to do. Because the Bible says that he was, he was in the middle of while that was happening. And again, I, we can assume it was while the water was flowing down and all the people were praising and, and there's all the trumpets are blaring. And it's just so, but as it starts to calm, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, Jesus, we're told, does something. It says he stands up and he says, all of you, who are thirsty. Now, he, the water's been flowing. All of you who are thirsty, come to me. All of you who believe, come and drink. For out of your very being will flow rivers of water. It will flow, just like this water flowing down. Streams of living water will flow out of the center of your life if you will believe and have me. Do you, it was like, it was powerful. It was like, what is he saying? What the claims he's making? If you are thirsty, come to me. That was powerful. Nobody knew what to do. Look what it says. There was so much d different reaction to watch what happens. It says when the crowds, again, I, I remind myself, because we can read it, we can attempt to convey it, but I don't think we can appreciate how startling, how jarring it must have been. First off, just from the physicality of Jesus yelling, standing up and yelling, right? That alone was jarring. 
the, the very fact that he did it was like, I don't think his disciples were, were expecting it. Nobody was. And then to not only what he did physically in terms of the vocal aspect of it and the presence of it, it was what he was saying, the implications of it. Here they are celebrating the God who saves. Hosanna. And he was essentially saying, the God who saves is here. And can you see what he is doing among you? Will you drink the water that he is now giving? Powerful. Now, what we see here is that when the crowds heard this, look what it says. They heard him say this. Some of them declared, surely this man, he must be a prophet we've, that we've been expecting. Yes. Others said, no, he, he, I think I know what he's saying. I believe he is. He is Messiah. So others says, No. Hey, that's impossible. He cannot be because we know the Messiah will come from. He, he will not come from the Galilee. There's no way. And he comes from the Galilee, from the north. The scriptures clearly state that Messiah will be born. Look at this. On the, born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem. Now, they didn't know that's where Jesus was born. The same village where King David was born. And so the crowd, look what it says here. The crowd was divided because of him. In fact, some people even wanted him arrested, it says but they didn't do it. No one, no one actually stepped forward to do it. But we know that something had happened earlier. Before this moment even happened, before Jesus did what he did, which seems so audacious, I mean, <laughs> the fact of the matter was, it was like, he, he, by the, his claims, by any estimation, if I can say it this way, were so incredible that they forced people to decide in that moment what he was going to be to you in the same way they do today. Because the fact is that nobody could say what he just said. And if you knew it wasn't the truth, to make such a claim would have made you an outright liar. If you believed it was true, but it wasn't true, then all the, everything else that Jesus did, the fact of the matter was he was self-deceived and crazy. Or he was who he claimed he was. But the one thing, as it's been said many, many times, the one option he doesn't give us, this is really important, is the option of, well, he's just a good man and a good teacher. Because nobody can make the claims that Jesus made after he tells us not to lie, after he talks about the value of ethics and life well lived and having sober assessments of ourselves and then to go and lie about who he was to make the claims that he made, unambiguous claims, I am the begotten Son of God. I am the offering. I am the ultimate saving of God. I am that. And it put people on a, in the spot because they had to basically either decide, okay, it's either going to be, a, a, you know, how do you get past that? It's, it's a winnowing fork. It's a cutting edge. It's either an occasion, I guess if we can put it this way, an occasion for acceptance with all that's implied or it's an occasion for re rejection with all that's denied. He is either, as he said, and it would later be said by the Apostle Paul, Jesus is either a stumbling, stumbling stone that we fall upon or he is a stepping stone, but he is not something indifferent. And one of those two, he, he, said, he would later say, I am the, the stone that the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone, one on which everything else is built. Powerful things that Jesus said. But the option is that you look at it, you go, my goodness, you know, this is what he's saying. And what, was, what he was basically telling us was, look, when it comes to me, 
And in this moment, he was basically saying, there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. But we know that there were a lot of people who wanted that middle ground. One of them was the man we've been talking about named Nicodemus. He neither could embrace Jesus, but he didn't feel like he could reject him either. He was trying to find his way in the safe middle. And it put him in some very awkward positions. Watch what happens, because what we know is, and you can see this here. You can see that in verse 45, it says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why, why haven't you brought Jesus? Where is he? We know from earlier in verse 32, which I'll put up real quick, they, they, had, they had sent a temple guard to arrest Jesus, or at least to bring him in so that they could have a conversation with him. Basically, they wanted to interrogate him because of some of the things he was teaching. That was before this. They had already sent a group of officers from the temple guard to arrest Jesus. That was before he did what he did. By the time they got there, Jesus was, was saying what he was saying and no doubt elaborating on it. So when they, when they, what happened is the officers came back. The contingent of soldiers came back and they said, the, and look, at, you can see the Sanhedrin's gathered. The Pharisees are gathered. Nicodemus is there as well, as are a few others. And they're all there. And the, the leaders say, where's... What happened? Where's Jesus? Did you guys lose him? How'd you lose him? Did he run away? Did he escape? How did he get past you? What's the deal? Where is he? We sent you with explicit orders. Bring him back. Why isn't he here? What's going on? And look what their answer is. They, they said, we weren't there, but watch what they say. We never, no, no man ever spoke like this man. We never heard anybody talk like him. They went to arrest Jesus, and his words ended up arresting them. And you could see what was happening. They said, you know, we just didn't feel it was right to arrest him at that point. It was like, it was like hearing from God. Now watch the reaction that occurs. You, and you could just feel it coming right out of the pages, right? Are you serious? Are you also deceived under his spell? I mean, come on. Look, what are you talking about his word? Look, look what they say. They say, look. And then they, they point out, they go, are, are you, look, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed? Look, do, take a look around you. Here, we are the leaders. We know the word. We know the law. Is there, we know the scriptures. Have, have, look. Is there anyone here who really believes in this man? Anybody here who doesn't have a question as to the fact that he cannot be Messiah? Ah, the ignorant rabble. They're always deceived by people like him. They get no question. They don't know anything. They have no grounding point. But we who know, know he cannot be. Look at that phrase that they use. We know exactly. It says here, but this crowd, this, they, don't know the, they don't know the law. They're just a curse. They're nothing. <laughs> now, the truth is, there were some in this group who did believe or who were starting to believe. One of them was Nicodemus. And when that man said, when they said, look around you, none of us believe, none of us. 
We all know who he is. No, we're not deceived like these people, like you, you gullible fools. Right? I mean, come on. That's the tone. That's the tone. And Nicodemus, he, he can't say, well, I kind of I like do a little bit believe, right? He can't, he can't say anything. You've got to remember, okay, best way to take this is to apply it to our own selves. Many of us, some of us have, most of us, I think, have some circles where we, we feel sometimes awkward. We don't know how to actually represent Jesus or even our feelings about him. It's such a delicate position. For Nicodemus, you've got to remember, he, this was his life. I mean, this was his legacy. This was his, he's older. His career is settled. These are his, these are, this is his, his reputation. This is all that he's earned, all that he's worked for. It's all that he's acquired. Um, it's not just that. If that were all it was, it would be quite something. But on top of it, these were the people he lived and engaged and studied with and worked with and made decisions. He, he liked them. They were the friends of his family. Their, their kids grew up together. I mean, this was, their lives were intertwined. It was like there were deep root, root intertwinements. I mean, this was not just like nothing. And yet, when Jesus is being basically just thrown out, thrown out as some kook who they must reject, Nicodemus can't say, I kind of, I, I, I've been wondering about, he can't say, he, he didn't, but he did do, he tried to do something. You can see what he tries to do. You can see it. Look, and the Bible describes it as Nicodemus, the one who had come to Jesus by night. That one. And he just, he, he says, um, well, there, you can see it. You know, I, 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 do, I, do, I do have a question here. This is how I, you can feel it kind of comes across this way. I do, I do, I do have a question, you know, I, th- I think we might be being too hasty here. I mean, does our, does our law condemn a man, you know, before we've had actually a chance to, to talk with him? I mean, I, I think he, he deserves an opportunity to share. I mean, I think, I think we need to be careful about making uh, uh, rash judgments. Now, that is a very tentative defense. Watch the ferocity of the return so here Nicodemus, he tries, he's trying. Watch what happens. Look, at the, look what it says here. Are you also from the Galilee? Okay. Search and look. There's no prophet that comes from the North Galilee. What they were saying. Now, when we read that, we go, oh, yeah, okay. Are you not from the Galilee? Okay, well, okay. I guess that was something in that, in that moment. That was like, Galilee was like where the, the ignorant hill people were. The unlearned and the untrained, the uneducated, know-nothings. The fools who were always being swayed by whatever. The common people. Are you, and it's like they were saying to them, that was, see, that was tossed out with, with a barb on it like a grenade. He comes out tentative, and they hit him so hard in that circle that was like, are you some type of dumb, uneducated fool? That's what that was. What is wrong with you, Nicodemus? How could you even bring that up? That is so, so off the wall. Have you forgotten who you are? I mean, it was so, it was like you being, I'd be in the conversation. We just try a little bit. And all of a sudden, you get hit so hard. You go, oh, my goodness, man, I can't say anything. 
It was so intense. He tries. He gets hit so hard back, he backs off. It says that in the next verse, it says they all went home. <laughs> there was nothing more to talk about. Okay, what's there for you and me? And there's a lot. But where I wanted us to kind of just sit and take and mull, I actually have two questions to kind of open it up, just to, to, to sort of just bring this. When it comes to our sharing, we'll just put this as number one. When it comes to our sharing with Jesus, how do we stay loyal to Jesus without alienating maybe our coworkers, unbelieving coworkers, friends, family members, people we have in our social circles we engage with? I mean, this is something that is worth pondering. And again, I'm not making the assumption that every single person here is, is a follower of Jesus at this point, but we certainly wouldn't be here if there wasn't something in our heart that was open to him. But those of us who are, who've made that decision to welcome him into our lives. We've made, we are followers. The fact is that there are going to come these moments where, you know, we are going to be asked to, to, to represent him in some way. How do we do that? How do we stay loyal to Jesus at the same time? Some of us, honestly, I know this is not true for all of us, but some of us, and I know because I've talked to a lot of people, in the church about this at different times. Some of us operate in environments where if, not, if there is not an overt hostility, there is a strong suspicion and it, let us say a subtle undercurrent of hostility to anyone who's too enthusiastic about Jesus. And anyone who, it, it's, again, there are not all, I'm not making a uniform statement. I am going to say that there are certain circles where talking about him is more delicate than others. And that we run the risk of getting stereotyped or put into a box that we don't want to be put into, which is exactly what was happening with Nicodemus. He knew that if he stood up and spoke out overtly, that he ran a risk that he could not take at this time. There was too much to lose for him. And so he tried a little bit. And you know, I often talk about that because it really does, it does remind me that there are times where, listen, it is, it's probably wise for us to say nothing at times. No question about it. At the end of the day, the way we live our lives does speak more loudly than what we say. At the same time, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times where if we love God, His Spirit is going to impress us to speak up. Sometimes it may be when something is being said that isn't accurate, or we feel compelled to at least represent Him a little bit differently. Do people even know we love Him? Do, that we, we go to church? That this is a part of our lives? Is that even part of our subtle discussions of life? Do, I'm just saying, do we ever show that card? And if so, how do we do it? Some people obviously can go overboard in one direction, but honestly, I think more, more of us, and this is the second question, that is this, is it possible that, that we can become overly cautious in our desire not to be boxed in or stereotyped, or maybe we feel a little bit ashamed about the reputation, and we won't come across as sophisticated or as intelligent, or we won't be able to say it right, or whatever the reasons why we are silent when God is trying to get us to say at least something to represent Him. Because honestly, if people never hear about Jesus from people that at least they, they like, um, who love Him, then how are they going to hear about Him, really? And who's the one that's going to be telling them? I mean, honestly, the, Jesus did say this, let, your, let our light show shine before people that they may see our good works and honor God, be drawn to Him because of what we're doing, right? I mean, that's the truth. And so here's the thing. There are times where I think God does want us not to be ashamed of him. It's like I was telling someone, I was saying, you know, if I heard somebody saying something about my kids or my wife, 
And I just happen to walk into a conversation. And I hear them say, describing her in a certain way or my kids in a certain way, and I love them. And, and the description is so distorted, so unfair, so one-sided in its representation, so unobjective in the guise of being intellectually true, that there's no one there to speak out on behalf of the people I love, I would be, I would be like so wrong to say nothing. Even if that was a friend who I felt was being misrepresented, even if there was an element of truth, you, you would, I would feel like if I walked out of that, after what I heard, and I walk out of that room and I say nothing, I say nothing, but my silence is a sort of compliance. I might as well have signed off on it. That, that if I love the people, if, ask, well, if I love, I will speak. Now, I may not speak, I'm probably do it improperly, but I will say this, I will still speak up. And there, I'm only using that as an example because there are times when the Lord wants us to, to say something, at least maybe even let someone know, uh, you know, hey, would you like to some point, you know, I go to church. I'm, I'm saying this, that's so subtle. Like, like I, 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 you know, talk about, what, when we do that, and I reminded myself, I said, Lord, you know, I think sometimes we, we, we are too, we're, we're too careful because we don't want to be misunderstood. And then there are times where honestly, listen, I know, listen, there are moments where God is saying, I need you to speak up for me. But I'm going to risk something. I know, but I need you to speak up for me. Not pride, not proud, not bombastic but with humility and sincerity, yes, I need you to speak up for me. I need you to find even a modest way, maybe an angle, maybe a different way to disclose the fact that you care for me. And I think when we do that in unsafe environments, the Lord's heart is moved. And I think there are times where his children, when we, when we pull back, when God wants us to step forward, because we say, well, I'm not, I mean, I, I have too much to risk, or I'll be missing, that the Lord's heart is hurt. I don't want to hurt his heart, right? And that, and then here's the thing, but even when we do, listen to this, I think that, and this is the third piece, I think that his mercy is, his patience with us is so infinite. I mean, the Lord doesn't rub our face in it when we don't do it right or say it right or whatever. I mean, I look at Nicodemus and say, man, God's being so patient with him. And by the time this is done, he's going to step out and he's going to declare himself for Jesus. When it's going to cost him, we're going to see this next week. And the thing about it is there are times I realize, like, oh, Lord, even Peter, who denied you, you loved him still. Wow. You know how patient the Lord is with us? Because he knows our frame. And we all have weak zones. We talk about that all the time. We're just, at our best, we're just wounded healers. That's all. Touched by God's grace. I never forget, never forget that. But that also means that we don't have to have it, everything together tight and to, to say that we love him. In fact, sometimes I think that actually our raw edges and our rough edges and our weak zones are actually better connectors for people to be able to come and to see Jesus because it creates accessibility. Okay, that's the last thing I'll say. And then, the th well, actually, this is the last of the last, right here. <laughs> well, this Easter, let's invite someone. And let's let it be known that we, we love him. And again, how we do it, the way we do it, we have, we have, people will come sometimes at Christmas and Easter. 
when they'll never come any other time. Because the culture's talking about Jesus. You can't miss it. You know, it's happening all over the world. It's on the covers of magazines. It's in discussions. We get a chance to be bridge builders and sowers of good seed. I can tell you this. There are certain people that only you can represent Jesus to right now that no one else can. And we know that lives are changed and transformed and that oftentimes generations are affected. Who can say all the good that will come from one act of little courage there? One. The sower went out to sow the seed. And some fell on good ground. And the one that did, it came, came forth a harvest, 30, 60, 100 fold, Jesus said. Who can say, scatter the seed. And then watch it grow. All right, let's pray. We'll close out. Lord, before we have our time of giving, and, and again, I, I ask for your blessing over our, our church to continue to work in our church's life. Help us to be able to represent your heart properly. I know that giving is a part of that, and I ask for that as faithful as a good steward. I, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in each of our lives. And I ask that this, this closing time that we just bring this all together, that there would become something of a prompting of your spirit to, to make you known, whether it's through a simple invitation, a thought. Help us to be praying for certain people, maybe people we work with, maybe people we're interacting with, just like, I, Lord, I've been trying to do, building relational equity with, with people and, and just to be able to talk to them, whether it's in a coffee shop or a, a place where I go to eat, whatever I can do, Lord, whatever we can do to, to create an access, and then just create an invitation moment. Uh, I just pray that you would put in our hearts to be, to be inviters, to be bringers. Again, I'm reminded there's never going to be a Peter unless a, a brother named Andrew invites him to come. So always somebody has to do that. And so I pray for your blessing over all of us. Keep our hearts warm towards you. In these next two weeks, I pray that it just, there'd be a special time for all of us to draw closer to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.